Hey, it's Gabe. I want to recommend a podcast I think you'll enjoy called What Could Go Right. On What Could Go Right, the hosts, Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varva-Lucas, sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues. They look back at how far society has come and look forward to what it will take to achieve a brighter future. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, listen to What Could Go Right wherever you get your podcasts. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com slash consulting. IBM. Let's create. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's the groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. This Father's Day, power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from the Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. Find the perfect Father's Day gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. This Day in History class is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, and welcome to This Day in History class, a show that shines a light on the ups and downs of everyday history. I'm Gabe Luzier, and in this episode, we're talking about one of the most outrageous and controversial baseball games of all time, one that had very little to do with the sport itself. The day was July 12, 1979. A promotional event at a Major League Baseball game devolved into a dangerous riot. The incident, known as Disco Demolition Night, was held at Chicago's Comiskey Park during a doubleheader between the Chicago White Sox and the Detroit Tigers. As the name suggests, the event was a kind of anti-disco demonstration. In exchange for a heavily discounted ticket, attendees were encouraged to bring a disco album, which would then be added to a pile and blown up after the first game. The rowdy crowd got so swept up in the destructive spirit of the evening that thousands of fans later stormed the field and began laying waste to the stadium. The free-for-all led to at least nine injuries, 39 arrests, and the cancellation and forfeiture of the second scheduled game. Opinions vary on what was the true cause of all the animosity on display that night. Did baseball fans just really hate disco that much? Or was their disapproval aimed not at the music itself, but at the minority groups who had popularized it? The main drive behind Disco Demolition Night 
was said to be the commercial dominance of disco music at the time. In the late 1970s, the popular dance music was inescapable. In fact, in 1978, disco singles had claimed the top spot on the Billboard Hot 100 for 37 weeks out of 52. And in the first half of 1979, it was on much the same track. 13 out of the 16 number one singles were disco. The genre wasn't just the king of the airwaves and music charts either. Influential films like Disco Godfather and Saturday Night Fever further extended the disco craze, as did fashion trends like white three-piece suits and big gaudy medallions. Not everyone was in on the fun, though. Fans of traditional rock music were especially upset that disco had usurped the cultural spotlight from their preferred genre. By the end of the decade, dozens of radio stations across the country had ditched their usual rock-centric programming in favor of an all-disco lineup. In 1978, Chicago's WDAI-FM followed suit, switching from rock to disco and firing its diehard DJ in the process. That DJ, Steve Dahl, quickly found a new gig at the city's rival rock station, WLUP, but he carried a grudge against disco with him. Dahl would often start his shift by playing a few seconds of a disco track on the air before dragging the needle across the record and playing a bunch of explosion sound effects to make it seem like he'd blown up the offending album. Plenty of Dahl's listeners shared his disdain for the trendy genre, viewing disco as inauthentic and lacking in substance. Dahl felt emboldened by the feedback from his anti-disco listeners, a group he took to calling the Insane Coho Lips. Soon, he doubled down on his crusade against disco, calling for, quote, the eradication and elimination of the dreaded musical disease. The rise in both the love and hate of disco happened to coincide with a sharp decline in Major League Baseball attendance. Things were especially dire in Chicago, where in 1979, the underperforming White Sox typically played for a crowd of just 10,000 or so fans, about a quarter of the capacity of Comiskey Park. The team's owner, Bill Veek, and the promotion's director, his son Mike Veek, tried all sorts of promotions to boost their low attendance, but nothing seemed to work. They had seen modest success when the team hosted a disco night two years earlier, but if DJ Dahl's tirades were indicative of Chicago residents, it seemed like public opinion had shifted. With this in mind, the Veeks approached Dahl with the idea of holding an anti-disco promotion at the ballpark. And of course, Dahl jumped at the chance. He and his team at WLUP spent the next several weeks promoting Disco Demolition Night, all across the state of Illinois. The promise of a fiery spectacle between games was enough to pique many fans' interest, but the real clincher was the promise that anyone who brought a disco record to the stadium would be admitted for just 98 cents. The original plan was to collect the records as fans entered the gates, but when the turnout proved much larger than expected, the collection bins filled up quickly. This resulted in many fans taking their records with them to their seats, thus arming them with the perfect projectile for when the evening's chaos began. That didn't take long either. The first game had to be stopped several times due to fans throwing their records onto the field, along with empty bottles, firecrackers, cherry bombs, and whatever else was handy. 
The distraction may have been to the away team's advantage, as the Detroit Tigers beat the White Sox 4-1 in the first game. Once the players left the field, it was finally time for what many in the crowd considered the main event. An enormous dumpster full of thousands of disco records was placed in the outfield and rigged with explosives. Steve Dahl stood next to it, wearing an army jacket and combat helmet, a nod to the insane coho lips, his army of disco haters. Dahl led the unruly crowd in chants of disco sucks and death to disco, and then he blew up the crate. The blast sent pieces of shattered vinyl soaring high into the air and left a large crater in the field. At that point, all hell broke loose. The official attendance that night was said to be just under 48,000, a complete sellout for the park. But some estimate the true size of the crowd to be about 60,000, as many people who had been turned away wound up scaling the gates and running past the ushers without a ticket. From that massive crowd, roughly 7,000 fans swarmed the field after the explosion. They destroyed the batting cage, stole all the bases, and even tried to break into the skybox where the team manager's family was sitting. Meanwhile, the bonfire continued burning and was stoked higher and higher by fans who fed it more records, along with general debris. Officials from both teams tried to calm the crowd, but to no avail. Shortly after, Chicago police arrived on the scene in full riot gear and began making arrests for disorderly conduct. They were able to disperse the crowd eventually, but by that point, the field had been so badly damaged that it was impossible for the second game to be played. As the home team, the White Sox were forced to forfeit the second game to the Tigers. It was the first forfeit by a major league team in five years, and only the fourth in baseball's modern era. For many fans of rock and roll, the incident was seen as no big deal. Sure, things had gotten out of hand, but they argued it was just a case of drunken revelers letting off a bit too much steam about the state of popular music. However, several minority groups believed something far more insidious was at play. To them, it was no coincidence that the early adopters and main drivers behind the disco trend were African Americans, Latinos, women, and gay people. They believed that the anger of the mostly white crowd was really directed at them, and that the disco albums they destroyed were a stand-in for their own bodies. Steve Dahl and White Sox officials rejected that notion, and to this day, they maintain that there was no racial or social hostility behind the event, just a simple disdain for disco. That said, some eyewitness reports from that evening suggest otherwise. For example, stadium ushers later told the press that many fans had turned in albums that weren't disco. Jazz, soul, R&B, and other genres were popular targets that night, and what was the one thing they all had in common? They were the works of black artists. Vince Lawrence, a young black usher at Comiskey Park, even became a target himself. In a 2019 interview, he recalled the scene, saying, quote, People started running up on me, yelling disco sucks in my face, getting in my face, confronting me as a person that represents disco, and there were thousands of people running around in this stadium buck wild. I started going, wait a minute, why am I disco? It's a valid question, as there was nothing about Lawrence's appearance or behavior that would suggest he listened to disco. In fact, he was actually wearing a shirt promoting Dahl's radio station. 
the sponsor of the disco demolition. Regardless of the true motivation for the event, Disco Demolition Night sent a powerful message to the public and is often described as the day that disco died. That may be an exaggeration, but there was a steep decline in the genre's popularity following that night. Several radio stations that had made the jump to disco transitioned back to rock and roll before the end of the year. Record companies began downplaying the term disco as well, opting instead for the more generic label of dance music. Disco's popularity continued to sink in the years that followed, but the genre never truly died. Instead, it just went underground, only to emerge a few years later under the name of house music. One of the pioneers of that do-it-yourself genre was none other than Vince Lawrence, the usher-turned-DJ who had been accosted by rock fans at Dolls' event. He made a name for himself in the Chicago music scene in the early 1980s and wound up co-writing the hit song On and On with fellow DJ Jesse Saunders. Released in 1984, that track became a staple of Chicago clubs and parties and was the first recording officially classified as house music. It's a nice reminder that although tastes may change as years go by, no one can ever really stop the music, not even with a riot. I'm Gabe Luzier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you'd like to keep up with the show, consider following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHCshow. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can always send them my way at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks to Chandler Mays for producing the show, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. What are you looking for in a new smart TV? 4K picture quality? High quality and immersive sound? A sleek design? All of those are givens, but only the new Roku Pro Series has all of those and the Roku Streaming Experience, an award-winning OS. Get fast, easy access to all your apps like iHeart, where you can stream all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts all day, and regular all-inclusive trips to Roku City. The new Roku Pro Series, a smart TV built by the streaming pros. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 
What's up, guys? This is Sean Lights Out Merriman, and Saturday, June 15th, Lights Out Extreme Fighting 17 returns to Casino Palma in San Diego. Get your tickets now at LightsOutXF.com, and we'll be live on Lights Out Sports TV, available on all major platforms. Doors open at 5 p.m. Pacific. You don't want to miss this one. It's going to be Lights Out. Lights Out Sports is free sports TV by athletes for fans. For details about the event and tickets, go to LightsOutXF.com.